We didn't know whether these guys were black, white, or Hispanic. I mean, because they were completely camouflaged, hoods and gloves and everything else, you know. And, and you know, you, you you put somebody in, in camouflage with hoods and stuff, and you stick a rifle in somebody's face, they're not going to know. I mean, they're gonna, all they're going to know is the rifle. Every incident that they participated in, except one, shots fired, shots fired, shots fired. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, with me today, as always, is Fitz. And I'm Ray Carr. Uh, you know, Fitz and I talk a lot about our days in the FBI, but today we'd like to talk about an incident that occurred in 1986 that forever changed the history and landscape of the FBI. Joining us today is a very special guest, retired FBI agent and friend, Edmundo Morales, author of the book, FBI Miami Firefight, Five Minutes to Change the Bureau. Ed, it's our pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Jim Fitz here. Yeah, and welcome to Cold Red. And um, we go back to my very first day in the Bureau. Um, I showed up on Sunday, November 17th, 1987. <laughs> and um, who was there but Ed Morales standing in the background with his arms folded, looking very officious. We all had a feeling he didn't necessarily want to be there, but he still did a great job. Uh, and then we learned some things about Ed afterwards and what he went through just about a year and a half before that. And we're going to come into that and we're going to talk about that down the line. But first, uh, Ed, you're, you're more than those five minutes. We all know that of what happened on that day in April of 1986. Yeah. So, uh, you're, you're a parent, you're a husband, you're a retired uh, uh, special agent, supervisory special agent, former Marine, two tours in Vietnam, right? No, no, you know, that, that, uh, that I don't know where that bio came from. I, I, uh, I was drafted during the Vietnam era, but I, and I was on my way there, but I never, I never served. That, that is oh. just some, some glitch in the, in the system. I, I never served in Vietnam. Well, it was Vietnam's loss. How much different that war could have been if Edmundo had gone there. <laughs> well, and, and, who knows how the Bureau could have changed if I had gone. You know, so. uh, okay, there's a couple different philosophical ways of looking at that. Right, exactly. But uh, you look great. It's, we had lunch about five years ago with one of my former classmates and, uh, and one of your charges back in the day. And uh, it was nice catching up then with you and your family. I know you're still in that general overall Quantico area. So, uh, so... If we can start at the beginning, like we usually do on these shows when we have guests, and we've actually talked about ourselves, nuanced uh, issues about growing up and whatever. I, I believe I read this. They got this right. You were born in Texas and raised there. And how was life for you growing up and what brought you eventually into the Marines and to the Bureau? Right. Correct. Hey, could I just have a minute to correct something you said earlier? Sure. I I, if, if my memory serves me right. Uh, I was I greeted you with open arms when you showed up at the academy. <laughs> welcome, welcome, guests. Come on down. We have something for you. <laughs> well, you know that's BS. You know that's that's baloney. Well, but, uh, you you put the fear of the Lord in. I mean, I was eleven year police veteran at that point, but we had many rookies who never even saw a gun before outside of a you know TV. And you were telling us a lot about the wolves out there, and no one knew. A, better about those wolves than you. So yes, you were, you were open arms uh, in, in your mind. 
but you are still letting us know this is the real deal. This is not gonna be a cakewalk. You've got to earn your way out of the FBI Academy as a special agent. And you and some of us did make it in that class, about eight or 10. And we can get a little bit more into that. But um, but again, I do want to hear more about you and your background. Well, you know what, I, I, guys, you know, I, I, I hate to sound, I hate to use a cliche, but I mean, I was just a regular guy. I came from a, a, a nuclear family in, in South Texas. I had a mother, father, and I had a brother and two sisters. I, I was the oldest four, oldest of four. You know, uh, nuclear family, extended family, church, school, and uh, I, maybe it's because my dad was a, a World War II veteran. You know, um, uh, he, uh, my dad had an eighth grade education when he was when he volunteered uh, to go to into the Army Air Corps, and, and then he was he was accepted. You know, uh, he wanted he wanted so badly to go fight the the, the enemy, the Germans. And he uh, enlisted when he was 16, 16 years and 11 months old. And, wow. and they still took him, you know. <laughs> so uh, he wasn't overtly patriotic, but he was patriotic, you know. So, uh, you know, the, the family and, and, and the church and the school and so on, back then the communities were, were, was different, you know. Every, everything was, hey, listen. You know, be a good citizen, be be a good steward uh, for the for the city, the nation, the, the state, and so on. So I was very lucky in that respect. You know, um, you know, had had a good upbringing. You know, it, I, it could have gone the other way if I hadn't had the you know the, the the strong base to build on. You know, I mean, it could have been way different. You know, so, but I, I got lucky. Uh, Vietnam War uh, was uh, going hot and heavy. I got a draft notice in 1971. And uh, my, I had two cousins and an uncle who had been drafted before, and they served in the Marine Corps. So I said, well, you know what? If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. So I, I enlisted <laughs> in the Marine Corps uh, rather than get drafted into the Army. So um, went through the training, uh, induction training, and so on and so forth. And by the time I was done with my training in uh, early 72, um, the Vietnam War was already tapering down with the Paris peace talks. And, uh, you know, Henry Kissinger and, and the Vietnamese and President Nixon, uh, they, they were they were trying to get the U.S., uh, you know, out of uh, Southeast Asia. And that, that worked out for me because, um, you know, I ended up not going. We, we were we were ready to deploy uh, the next month um, before the war was 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 uh, ended. After that, you know, I, I served in the Marine Corps for, for my remaining four, three years. And. Um, it's a it's a weird story. Not too many people know about it. Uh, I enlisted. I mean, not enlisted. I was selected for the Marine Security uh, Guard Battalion, which is security duty for embassies. And uh, I served in Sofia, Bulgaria, for a year, and then I was transferred to Madrid, Spain. And that was talk about luck because there was a a, a gentleman assigned to the embassy. And he was called the legal attaché. And by that time, I'm like 19 years old. You know, I'm thinking, what the hell is a legal attaché? I found out he was an FBI agent assigned to the embassy. And I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and he, uh, his name was Jerry. Jerry and I got to be friends. You know, we fast, you know, fast friends. And he was there for four years, uh, the whole time that I was there. And uh, I... My, my tour of duty came, uh, ended. I got married to a, a, a girl in the embassy, and I started going to college in, in Madrid. And um, Jerry, you know, and I were stayed in contact uh, pretty frequently. And um, 
one day we were at a at a gathering at someone's home and he pulled me aside he said hey you're almost done with your college right i said yeah yeah i said I, i'm in my uh, I'm, I'm at the end of my my junior year next next year will be my my senior year he said hey that's good he said have you ever considered uh applying for the fbi and i was like stunned you know i was like what I said jerry are you serious I thought you had to be an attorney or, or, or an accountant to be an FBI agent. He goes, we, we all used to think that. That's a, that's a good point. Everybody in the world thinks that, you know, and that's what he told me. He said, hey, we hire from a vast, uh, you know, different, you know, spectrum of, of, uh, of um, uh, backgrounds and, and, and training and, and so on and so forth. He said, hey, you know, based on the fact that you, uh, you're you a former Marine, you are almost completed with your, your, your uh, bachelor's and you speak fluent Spanish. He said, I'd be, I think you'd be a great candidate. I said, well, thanks, Jerry. He said, Jerry said, hey, I'm going to write or send a telex. <laughs> to, uh, you may have to explain to your audience what a telex is. You know, <laughs> uh, you send a telex to FBI headquarters and uh, I'll get you an application. And when you get it, he said, you know, make extra copies and then rough draft it and get all your answers right. And he said, hey, use me as a reference. He said, I'd like to be your reference. So, wow. I mean, geez, I mean, that was, I mean, talk about recruiting in place, you know. <laughs> so it's it's so, amazing with with all of us how Jupiter aligns with Mars sometimes and yeah, here yeah, in, yeah. in your case it happened in Madrid Spain yeah that that's what led to my my uh get you know being interested in the FBI and I was really and when I look back on I was really uh thankful or, or pleased or, or grateful that Jerry saw something in me that you know said hey you know what I, I like this kid you know I think he'd be a good candidate I'm going to make the extra effort. He approached me. He said, hey, have you thought about it? I'll get you the application. Use me as a reference. And I'm thinking, wow. you know. And um, about 18 months after that, I, I was at uh, at Quantico, uh, at a training academy. I was going to say the Yellow Footprints, you know, but that's another uh, agency. <laughs> <laughs> so you're back in Quantico, but not as a Marine, but as a new agent trainee. Interesting. Correct. Yep. yep. Right? That's correct. Yeah. 1979. You know, um, that's when I ended up at the Academy. You know, Ed, there's, uh, there's so much talk. Where was your, where was your first office? Uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, cause, cause I, I transferred back, uh, my, my first wife and I transferred back to, uh, Washington cause she worked for, uh, for uh, a government agency. And, uh, so my first off, I, 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 I called FBI headquarters and, you know, say, Hey, can I have the applicant unit? And they go, get, get in line. Who are you? <laughs> you know? So I, I said, well, you know, I sent my application in, you know, they said, Hey, wh where are you living now? I said, I'm living in, in Arlington. And they said, well, you got to contact the Alexandria FBI office. So I, I ended up going through Alexandria. They recruited me, and I, I ended up going to Quantico through the Alexandria office. So when I graduated from the academy, they sent me back to uh, WFO. You know, I don't know why WFO was supposed to Alexandria. I guess Alexandria was full. So uh, and that's the Washington Washington field office for the, the for old Washington field office, the old Buzzards Point. You know, so that's right. Yeah, before before my time. How long? Uh, how long did you spend there, Ed? I spent. Uh, <clears throat> God, that's, that's a complicated answer. I spent five years at WFO, but right in the middle of that five years, um, I took a, uh, a long-term undercover operation. Uh, they, it's a specialty uh, recruiting. Um, 
had to have a business background, which I did. And then I had to have a foreign language, which was Spanish. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I met the, the, I guess the minimum requirement, you know, because <laughs> I'm a minimum, I'm, I'm, I'm a minimum level guy. You know, so. He's, he's so humble. He's so humble. Go ahead. I was recruited uh, uh, for a long-term operation, you know, and, and it was 18 months in Miami. So after the operation was over, I came back to Washington Field and, at, in uh, 1984. And then I spent, uh, I was transferred back to Miami, in, in, not in an undercover capacity, but as a regular street agent in 1985, April 85. How much time did you have in the Bureau by that time, Ed? Uh, in, in 85, I had five years in. Okay. Little, little bit over five. Ed, um, I, I know you've written this. We're going to talk about your first book, but I know you already have a, a second book written that you're hoping to have published maybe later this summer or in the fall. Right. That's right. your game plan. Uh, Lalo, uh, Undercover Tales of Money, Drugs, and Lies. Is that based on the 18-month undercover operation you just were telling us about? Oh, no. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Oh boy! You know, I, and and I may be getting ahead of the uh, ahead of the story here, but a, after after my shooting incident, you know, which just for the for the benefit of the audience, I was I was seriously injured. Uh, yes. My my left arm, which is still attached, by the way, amazingly, was almost was completely shot off my body, and my my left arm, forearm, was just completely shattered to a point where. When I ended up in the hospital, the doctors, you know, were conferring with my wife at the time. Uh, they said, hey, you know what? Uh, they said, we don't have too many options. And, and my wife, Liz, who's also an FBI agent, they told her, they said, hey, option one is amputation. And she goes, okay, that's kind of extreme. What's option two? Amputation. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's what they were, that's, what, that's how bad it was. And I told Liz came in and told me. She said, "Hey, I said, hey, isn't there anything they can do? You know, I mean, if I if I if I get if, the, if it's got to be amputation, and I mean, it's rather amputation than lose my life, you know. So obviously, so they said, hey, you know what? We we've learned a lot since the Vietnam War. You know, some of our guys were in the military, military doctors, you know, combat doctors, and so on. So they said, you know, we might be able to do something if." the the two arteries you got you've got an artery on the uh, on the pinky side and an artery on the thumb side you know the, the radial artery and the and the ulnar artery you know they said hey if those two arteries are intact you know to 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 send a blood supply blood flow to the fingers we might be able to save his arm you know so I said, well, let's let's at least explore that option, you know. So Friday, uh, when I, I, the shooting happened on a Friday, they they went in and they cleaned the, uh, the the arm up, they cleaned the wound, and you know they just kind of set it, you know, in place, you know, because I had a hole in my in my arm. Amazing. Uh, it's hard. You look at your forearm, you know. I mean, I'm not Hulk Hogan or anything like that, but the medical report that I read said that I had a hole in my arm, six inches long and three inches wide. And I'm thinking, my, my arm isn't even three inches wide, you know. But uh, what they were measuring was the, 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 you know, skin is elastic, you know. So when, when the round exploded out of my, my arm, it exploded out like that. And, and it was a, a wound that was three inches wide, you know. So it went from one side of the arm to the other, even though it was all one arm, you know. Mm. And, and that's what practically destroyed my arm, you know. So 
they said, hey, we're going to just pack his arm. Um, we're going to run some tests. We're going to uh, run a, uh, a, a tube or a shunt through his uh, arteries, through his heart. And if we can find the, uh, the two arteries in his arm that are supplying blood to the, to the fingertips, we might be able to save his arm. And you know what? Hallelujah. I mean, for as much damage as I had, it, it, um, that round took two inches of my radial bone, the thumb side, and two inches of the ulnar bone on, on the pinky side. A total of four inches of, of my bone were just completely, completely pulverized. It just blown out of my body, you know. So I had a gap two inches long, two inches wide, I should say, uh, in my arm. You know, they said, hey, it's going to be hard, but, you know, the, the key is the arteries. If the arteries are intact, we might have something to work with. And you know what? Again, another miracle of miracles. I mean, among all the other 12 miracles that, that saved my life, you know. So um, so uh, they said, hey, you know, the arteries are intact. You know, now we, now we can try to plan something different as opposed to option one, which was amputation. <laughs> and, you know, just, just let me add here. We're going to come back to that fateful day in a bit. But all the wounds you're describing, the bullet going in, tearing the flesh, putting that big hole, after that happened is when you took care of business, is when you had to take out the two guys yeah. with uh, barely able to firing the weapon at that time because you're down to one hand. And we right. can talk right. about that in a minute. But just so this wasn't after everything was over, he got this, it got this wound. This was uh, during the course of the firefight. And he yeah. still had to react accordingly with basically a limp arm at that point or barely right. functioning. And we can get into that a little bit more. But this started out with the other undercover part. Yeah, but, you know, th that's what I was going to get at. You know, so I went to Quantico as part recuperation, part sharing my knowledge, you know, sharing my 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 experiences to, with, with you guys like you. Welcome aboard, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right, it was like this. But, it was like this kind of. You know what though? But honestly, you know, I and please don't. I hope your audience doesn't take this wrong. You know, I'm, I, I mean, I don't want. I don't want the audience to sound like, like I'm ungrateful or a knucklehead or, or, or a horse's ass or whatever. But you know, I loved Quantico. I mean, Quantico is a fantastic. It's a national, international level academy, law enforcement academy. And you know what? It is super, super to have worked there. But you know what? I, I, you know. Like I told the uh, my my supervisors uh, up at headquarters, I said, guys, I want I, I'm a cop. I said I don't want to play cop at, at the academy. You know that's not the kind of person I am. You know because they kept saying, Ed, you're crazy to leave Quantico. You know what after what happened to you? I said, guys, I know I'm I'm a man of action. I I can't. I mean I could if if, if push came to shove, but given a choice, I would rather be out doing things than than, than teaching. Okay. I wasn't quite at the point where I, I was disabled enough to, to only teach. I was still able to to do work, to function, you know. So I requested a transfer back to Miami. And in 1989, I was sent back to Miami. And that's where my undercover work really started. Um, uh, I, I picked it up again. And I worked undercover from 1990, basically, until 2004, uh, an additional 15, 14 years, you know, so... That is what Lalo is all about. I mean, I, I touch on the uh, the, the long-term undercover operation in 82, and then I pick it back up in 1990. You know, it's just a, a series of little cases that we worked. I mean, I, I wasn't like Donnie Brasco. Like, uh, he, he worked undercover on one case for five years, okay? I worked undercover for 14 years doing multiple cases 
you know, wherever the need uh, arose. I worked in Miami. I was called to work in New York. I was called to work in Charlotte. I was called to work in El Paso, Chicago, Houston, L.A. I mean, I mean, just kind of like a, somebody, somebody once called me like a, a troubleshooter. I said, no, I'm a troublemaker, not a troubleshooter. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, the, the book Lalo is about, you know, the little vignettes about, you know, undercover cases and, and funny stuff that happened working undercover. Well, we're looking forward to reading that. That's for sure. Okay. You know, Ed, I I would really like to know um, that first book, uh, just so everybody knows, I've read it. You actually signed it for me Until- uh, when you came up to uh, you came up to Wilmington to speak at our violent crime symposium last year. And you know what? Jim talks about you being so serious and so rough and tough. In the beginning, in the beginning, this is, Go ahead. this is the Ed that I got to know. We're post, I'm supposed to meet him in the lobby area around two o'clock when he comes in the day before he's supposed to speak. So I walk out looking for him and I see this guy dressed extremely comfortable, like he's going to the beach, right? And uh, I got all these vendors out there and they're all around and they're all looking and he's walking up looking at the tables. And I hear him say to the vendors, Is this the job fair? Is this where I can come and get a job? And they're going, no, no, no. Then they're very serious. No, this is a law enforcement function. You you can't be here. But I really need a job. I really need a job. Can you guys help me get a job? <laughs> and finally, I go, over here, sir. I can help you get a job. He goes, oh, it's great. Finally, someone that can help me. And he walks over. And these guys never knew who he was until later when he comes back to speak the next day. <laughs> what what a character you are, Ed, oh. and and you know to a lot, and you I don't even know if you know this, but to a lot of FBI agents and police officers, you're don't a use the H word. Don't use the H word. He hates no, it, no, but he is. I know he does. But the thing is, is that you're very special because you you um, you've gone to places where nobody's gone before. And uh, and and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts because what you did helped change a lot of things when I went through the academy after that and Jim of how we do things, how we approach arrests and all that. And we want to start talking about that a little bit. So I really like to know, based on the title of that book, how and why did that incident forever change the FBI and how law enforcement functions overall? Wow. Uh, you know, you have a couple of hours. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, I hear you. I, you know I, I thank you for your kind words, you know, and, and when you saw me over at the vendor's table at, at the conference that, that you referenced, yeah. you know what? I, I'm no, I'm just, a, I'm just, a, I'm just a person. I'm, I'm not nothing special. You know, I, I don't purport to be anything above, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just a regular guy, really, you know, I'm just under the radar. If I tease people or get it, get a rise out of them, you know, I, I, I enjoy that, you know, but, but the important part about the incident, you know, is like, I tell people, uh, it's, it's important for everyone to know and understand. It's not about Ed Morales. Okay. It's about Ben Grogan and Jerry Dove. Okay. Those two agents. Okay. Those two guys were my friends and my squad mates. Okay. And I saw them. And again, I hate to use cliches, but I've got to say it. Figuratively speaking, there was a line 
in the sand. Okay, and Ben and Jerry, along with the rest of us, had our, our toes right on that line. Okay, and nobody backed up. Okay, and I, I especially, I, I try to emphasize to young young officers, agents, and, and, and police, you, you can you live up to that legacy? I said, you know, because I can tell you, I'm, I'm an eyewitness. There was weathering gunfire that we faced, and Ben and Jerry did not flinch, and they did not step back one step. They faced it head on. They looked it in the eye, and they, they gave their last full measure for, for, for in the service of, uh, of the country and the Bureau and Dade County, you know. But, and I, and my, my purpose in writing the book and, and, and lecturing and stuff, it's not about me, okay? It's about Ben and Jerry, okay? I just happened to show up. I just happened to be there, you know, <laughs> for basically for all intents and purposes, you know, because they, I tell people, I said, hey, they, I, I was on the left side of the scene. They were on the right side. Okay, and, and when everything was going on, I couldn't see what they were doing and they couldn't see what I was doing. But what, but there came a point in time when they were the focus of the of the shooting. That gave me time on my end, on my side, time to recuperate, regroup. Because, I mean, when I got shot, I was shot twice, by, by the way, in case people are interested. Once through the arm, which almost blew my arm completely off. And the second round hit me right here. It hit me in the forehead right here, and it kind of ricocheted underneath my my hairline, my, my scalp. Boy, now this thing—I mean, talk about getting your bell rung! Boing, you know. I mean, the round hit me. You know, it was uh, so I was disoriented to say the least, you know. So, but when Ben and Jerry were operating, were working, that gave me time to regain my senses, reorient myself, and and start formulating a plan because I I felt I could still function. Okay, and Let, let's uh, and let's take this opportunity to back up a little bit. I and mean, this is okay. this is great where you're going. But for the folks, younger folks, and perhaps those not necessarily aware, um, this was a bank robbery squad you were on, correct? Right. right. And a month or two before a series of armored car robberies and bank, take us a little bit through that time frame, and then how, of course. It was Jerry and Ben who wound up following uh, the right. car of the two killers. So give us a, a thumbnail sketch of the early yeah, days of this whole thing. Thumbnail sketch. You know, we had a series of bank robberies starting in, in uh, August, September of 1985. And even by Miami standards, and if anybody's never been there, I mean, people who haven't been there, I'll tell you what, to, to impress people in Miami, you've really got to do something, okay? And they, these guys started out with a bang. They robbed a, an armored truck in front of a restaurant at gunpoint and you know th there was some exchange of words and and you know a hostage hey, you know get the get your partner to open the the truck and the the partner said no he followed policy he drove away so the guard with the gun in his ear was thinking oh my god these guys are going to kill me and they didn't kill him they knocked him on the head took his gun the partner fired 15 16 rounds of uh two, 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 223 caliber ammo at the rear of the truck okay so, I mean, that's odd by, by Miami standards, but these guys ran to their getaway car and they jumped in the car and they're speeding out of the parking lot. Uh, you know, I don't know why. They they pulled out two smoke grenades. They pulled the pins on the smoke and then popped. They popped smoke as they're going out of the parking lot like, they're, like they're, they're making a helo landing in Vietnam or something, you know. So now that 
even by Miami standards, was unusual. So we, we, we knew right away, said, hey, these guys are from out of town. These guys don't, these guys, these guys are brand new. That's, that's the first time that we ever had that type of ammo. So lo and behold, next week at a different location in South Miami, uh, a Winn-Dixie uh, grocery store, shots fired. No, no money was gotten. The next day, shots fired another armored truck. And we said, man, these guys are, you know, persistent. So we ended up getting a, a, a six robberies that we can forensically link back to the uh, the two robbers, uh, Platmatics. Um, but up until up until um, there was an incident the following year, up until uh, that incident uh, where, where they they robbed a, a, a young man of his car, we didn't know whether these guys were black, white, or Hispanic. I mean, because they were completely camouflaged. With hoods and gloves and everything else, you know, and, and you know, you, you you put somebody in, in camouflage with hoods and stuff, and you stick a rifle in somebody's face, they're not going to know. I mean, they're gonna, all they're going to know is the rifle. You know, yes, sir, officer, the rifle had a hole this big. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's all they focus on. You know, so so uh, yeah, you know, they, they were they were odd. They, they were an oddity because the other and that that's where people you know I have to explain to people that there were other robberies in Miami. We had two other separate gangs operating in Miami and they each had an MO. Okay. We had the Hispanic gang. They had a, they had a particular style. You had the black gang. They had a, a, their style, but these two guys, man, they were just totally combat and every incident that they participated in, except one shots fired, shots fired, shots fired. Okay. So we knew these guys were pretty serious uh, players, you know, so, but, um, as luck would have it, we ended up on April 11th. We, we got some pretty good information, intuitive policing, you know, intuition and, and putting all the little tiny pieces together. Gordon McNeil, our supervisor, uh, he, he uh, said, hey, let's do a surveillance tomorrow. And and that's how we ended up on surveillance, just a, a pure hunch. You know, so um, and as luck would have it, you know, Gordon's hunch was right. You know, we ended up uh, locating these two these two bank robbers, you know, killers. And, and did you know? Did you know their names at this point? Did you know the car they would be nothing, driving? Nothing. Nothing. We had no names. It wasn't until the three weeks prior that the witness who who was shot and left for dead in the Everglades. Right. That's right. Okay. They stole his Monte Carlo. That witness survived, and that witness gave us a lot of information, a lot of intel. Okay. He said, "Hey, there's two two white males. They're six foot, six foot one, six foot two. Slender, they, they have a military bearing. They're driving a white pickup truck. And uh, he gave us a, a, a composite. He gave the Metro Dade County Police Department a, a, a composite sketch. And, you know, that was pretty good. It was pre- pretty close uh, sketch work on, uh, for, 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 you know, somebody who was shot, you know. So um, up until that point, we had no idea who these guys were. We just had like two little sketches on, on, on a piece of white paper, you know. So, um, and like I said, as luck would have it, you know. Uh, we, we ran into them, you know, and everybody knew. I, I mean, it was like telepathy or like an unspoken thought or whatever. We knew when we found these guys, there was going to be problems. There was going to be, there's going to be real serious problems. Okay. And I can't, I can't honestly say that I expected a shootout, but everybody knew that there, their high probability of, of, of a shootout, you know, and of course the, the results speak for themselves, you know, so. Ed, can you can you walk us through that morning, how surveillance kind of got together, how you guys set up, and when you guys first engaged the Black Monte Carlo? 
Yeah. Okay. As I told you before, Gordon McNeil uh, had had called the surveillance you know, strictly on a hunch, and and I hope I hope I'm not wasting your your time, you know. But oh, absolutely, you're not. <laughs> he, he was he was talking to Ben Grogan. Ben Grogan was the case agent, and Gordon McNeil was the supervisor. He's he's he uh, he was talking to Ben. They were at firearms training the day before the shootout, and Gordon told Ben said Ben, you know what? Why don't we set up a surveillance tomorrow? And uh, and Ben said, okay, Gordon. I mean, you you got something? You know something? I don't know. He said, well, he said I just have a hunch, and 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 he he, he and I know this story because Gordon related it to the squad after the shooting incident. You know, so he said, hey, I I, I told Ben. I said, Ben, you know. The last time they hit, confirmed hit, was three weeks ago. The last time they hit, they only got $8,000. Okay, normally when they hit a, an armored truck or a bank, they got forty, fifty thousand dollars 50000 And the third thing that Gordon uh, referenced was tomorrow. He said, tomorrow is Friday. And I don't know whether some of your audience knows, but I mean, I'm an old timer. Friday used to be called Payday Friday. Okay, that's when you have to have these things called checks, you know, paychecks. You have to have to you used to have to go to the bank or either make a deposit, deposit your check, or cash it. Okay, so on Fridays, banks had a, a, an excessive amount of cash, you know, because they knew there would be a run on, on on payday, you know. So, so he said, "Hey, three weeks ago they hit, they got eight thousand, and tomorrow's payday Friday." Okay, he said, "I, I think they're due." So Ben said, "Hey man, that's that, that's good. Let let's do it. I mean, I, I can use all the help I can get." And that was it. We, there was no tip, there was no informant, there was nothing. It was just Gordon McNeil saying, "Hey, I have a feeling, I have a hunch." Okay, and that's how how, how uh, the surveillance was initiated. Now the next morning, uh, I don't know how the FBI is now, but uh, you know, we had a squad of about eighteen guys, and the word was put out saying, "Hey, anybody who can be." Uh, help on a surveillance tomorrow morning. Please be here at, at 7 a.m. so we can stage in South Miami. And you know what? You have to kind of throw it out like that because, you know, people have, uh, agents have other leads. They have court dates. They might be on leave. They might be on sick leave. or They may be doing a deposition someplace. So you can't order the whole squad to show up, you know, because there are other commitments, you know. So what we ended up with is 11 agents out of the 18 that were on the squad. And then we had three uh, agents from the Homestead RA. So we ended up with 14 agents. And um, we met at the at 160th Street in Home Depot, at a Home Depot parking lot, you know. So everybody staged there. And, you know, we, uh, we said, okay, you know, we, we've got 14 agents. We've got four locations that we want to surveil. So we kind of split the, split the, the manpower up, you know, as evenly as possible. And every every location had three agents uh, assigned to it, except the the middle location, where Ben and Grogan were um, were assigned, because that location had two separate banks in, in the same uh, shopping uh, uh, mall. Okay, so you you're covering two banks. You need more more manpower. So that's why we had sure. three agents at that location. So that's how it started. I mean, it's like assignments. Okay, what do you got? We got the description of the stolen Monte Carlo, description of the uh, white pickup truck, description, the, the little uh, schematics, uh, potato head you know, looking guys, you know, um, and a, a description of a, of a uh, Metro had given us a, a, a stolen car report, of some woman that disappeared like two or three weeks before. No one had seen her, you know, so we had a description of her car. So we were looking for a gray, uh, like a, a LTD, 
a white pickup truck and a black a black Monte Carlo. So everybody's spread out, and we were just you know sitting around the area, you know, because um, and I'm sure you guys would know, but your audience may not know. When the FBI responds to a bank robbery, a lot of times we respond from the field office, okay? And the field office at the time in Miami was in, north of downtown Miami by about uh, about four or five miles north of downtown. So if there's a bank robbery in South Miami, that's like a 30, 35-mile drive, okay, from the field office, okay? And it's all... A little bit of interstate driving, but most of it is like street driving, like you know, inter, you know, big roads, you know, three and three lane roads. But there's still traffic lights and a lot of traffic and so on. So if if a bank robbery came in, you know, at at the, at the field office, it would take us even with red light and siren, take us thirty minutes, forty minutes to get to South Miami. So we figured, hey, we're already in South Miami. We're in place, you know, we're surveilling, you know, and we are also in a position in case there's a bank robbery alarm, you know, we, we can be there in two minutes as opposed to 20 minutes. So that was the idea, you know, hey, we, we, we might actually see something or we might be able to be in a position or in place to respond within a two or three minute window as opposed to a 20 minute window. So that was the plan. Yeah, and I we did a lot of these in New York City. We usually meet at the bat at Yankee Stadium. That's where we would uh, set up our surveillances for bank teams, and and we've had colleagues too in in uh, in, in uh, you know get engaged the bank robbers in shootouts. And I just missed it one day in my particular case. But but back to you. So I believe it was actually Ben and Jerry who first saw the car. Correct. That's correct. Yeah. And they followed them, and they're on the radio, of course, and they're. Were they 100% sure or saying, hey, we think this is the car, and then people start converging? How did that part well, work? That, that, that's a good question, you know, because I always, I, I've gotten to a point where I, I, I try to be as honest with my audience as possible. And I, I've gotten to telling my, my audience, you know, and, and training training uh, police conferences and stuff, and I, and I tell them, I said, hey, what I'm about to tell you is speculation based on the results of the case investigation based on common sense okay because that's all we have and people look at me like i've got two heads they look at me like what do you mean that's all you have i said well you had ben grogan and jerry dove saw platt and maddox okay two agents two bank robbers and guess what four witnesses those four witnesses are dead okay so we really don't know exactly what happened based on, on on a variety of different you know events that happened and and you know radio communication and so on and so forth we speculate we can we have a pretty good strong speculative assessment of what happened and and this is what I think happened during the course of the setting up of the surveillance in the shopping mall with the two banks, Ben and Jerry were in their car, you know, situated somewhere in the parking lot. They must have seen a black car pull into the, the mall parking lot. And you know, you know how malls are, you know, there's cars, there's rows of cars parked, you know, for blocks. You cannot look and see a, a license plate unless you're directly behind 
or directly in front of that car. You know, so my speculation is that Ben and Jerry saw a black car pull into the parking lot. They saw the black car circle the banks and I forgot to mention it for the audience. One of the banks had hired off-duty Metro-Dade police officers as extra security because those two banks had been robbed before. So they were paying the uh, the uniformed officers as as private security to sit in the bank, sit, sit in front of the bank between opening and closing. Okay, so we speculate that the Black Monte Carlo, the passengers of the Black Monte Carlo, came in to the parking lot, drove around, saw the police uh, cruiser decided not to not to hang out and they went back to US1 okay and started heading north because Ben my assumption is Ben and Jerry saw the black black car okay they said hey you know what though let's follow it and see if we can get the tag okay so that was at 136th street okay mm-hmm. a few minutes later Ben was at 130th street when he called out on the radio so he had gone 6 blocks north without a, a without being able to verify the tag until he got like six blocks north. So it wasn't until he verified the tag that he called out, attention, all units were behind a black vehicle, two-door, Florida tag, NTJ891, okay? And that's when it really started, okay? But as far as you know, I mean, I think that's a reasonable assumption of what happened, but it, I, honestly, four dead witnesses. I mean, we, we, we really don't know what exactly what happened, you know, so... But yeah, you know that uh, once Ben announced that he was northbound on US one, he was already, he was already past my. I, I was at the northernmost uh, surveillance point. He was already past my position by two blocks. I'm thinking, holy cow! How, how you know? I'm thinking, how the hell did he get up there? Okay, and then you know when we started piecing it together with all the other agents, you know, say, what did you see? What did you hear? What happens here? What happened there? You know, we kind of pieced it all together, and, and I think it's a reasonable deduction of what happened. Because you know what? In reality, we'll, we'll never really know exactly what happened. And don't forget, Maddox and Platt were also very hypersensitive. I mean, I don't know them either. We don't know what was in their brains. But it's very possible before long, they could have circled the bank. And and I used to do surveillances for bank robberies and even as a cop back in the day. And you see a person circle uh, around a, mar- a parking lot, especially two adult males, um, and they just take off. They're probably up to something no good, dealing drugs or whatever. They have a bunch of bank robbers already happening in this part of Miami. Yeah, they circle around once. The car kind of matches two white males. Yeah, why it not was, follow them at this it point? Was, it, it was too close to let pass. Absolutely, put it that way. You know, and that says what good agents, what good agents yeah. they were, of course, to to put two and two together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and and the rest is pretty much history. You know, it was a short. Uh, as a short surveillance uh, from the time Ben Grogan says, attention all units, until the time he says, felony car stop, let's do it. Three minutes, a total of three minutes expired, okay? And and I, I've talked to a, a lot of um, current uh, agents at police conferences, and, and I throw it out to everybody because every, the Bureau now, and for, for, for good reasons, the Bureau now is like, hey, you can't do anything unless you have an op- ops plan. Okay, right. you got to have an ops plan. And I'm thinking, hey, you know what? Ops plans are great if you've got two days or a day or two to, to plan. Okay, but I, th- I throw it out to them, to the audience. I say, hey, you have got to be able uh, to adjust. Okay, can you prepare an ops plan in three minutes? 
Okay, I said, hey, you need you you need to be able to operate in different environments. Okay, you, you know, we could have said, and I tell people, I said, hey, we could have said, hey, you know what? This looks like it might be too dangerous. You know, we we just why don't we back away? Of course, you know, we had no idea who these guys were. You know, we we had a, a, a witness who said they were white. Okay, they were in a stolen car. They had the, that car had been seen at a bank robbery three weeks earlier. So we had a confirmation that it was a car and we had a pretty good confirmation that those are the bank robbers. <clears throat> what, what kind of an agent would I be if I said, Hey, you know what though? This looks too tough. Let's come back and do this another day. We'll let them rob some more banks or we'll let them kill some more bank, uh, uh, armored truck guards, or we'll, we'll let them kill another civilian to steal his car. It's like, no, it's not going to happen. You know, some it was it was going to happen one way, and we all knew it. And we had that that telepathy going amongst the team. Okay, they were not going to get away. Okay, and and I know because I've talked to the other agents, you know. And again, they said, hey, you know, they felt the same way. They were not going to escape that day. Period. No, no matter what it took. Okay, it, it we paid a heavy price. Okay, but. To let them escape and not know, not really know who they were. I mean, that that would be that would be kind of like almost bordering on negligence, you know. But um, you know, it was like immovable object meets irresistible force. It it was they were not going to escape. Period. End of story. Right there. <laughs> so, Ed, you know, one of the things you mentioned, and just for our audience, you mentioned operation plan, and just so they know what that is, and that that really didn't come into fruition until almost in the early 2000s, you know, and, and, and that's 15 years after the Miami shootout, yeah. because I remember being, there were sort of, you know, makeshift plans when you had them, but I can tell you that I've been part of hundreds of those operation plans. I was on a bank robbery squad in Philadelphia, hundreds of them. And you know what? Not one of them played out the way it was supposed to. Of course Because not. it never does. It of never course, does. We we all know. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's a, you know, it's not a law enforcement axiom. It's a military one. The saying yes. goes, "Hey, no plan survives contact with the enemy." I mean, <laughs> as you know, and that's what I tell people. I said, "Hey, how many types of car stops do you have?" And, and I said, you know, and I break it down for them simply. You've got a compliant and a non-compliant car stop. Okay, a compliant car stop. You know, we all do it. You get pulled over for speeding. Okay, officer, I'm sorry. You know. Please don't give me a ticket. You get a double fine, pal. You know so. But uh, the other, the other part is non-compliant. Okay, and that's what it. That's what happened in the in the, in the Miami incident. Okay, when when Ben and Jerry said felony car stop, let's do it. They put the uh, the police light on the dashboard. They hit the siren, and you know what? That slow surveillance that we had going suddenly became a high speed chase. Okay, a non-compliant car stop. Okay, so I don't care what kind of an ops plan. You had you would have you were you you had at that point when they you know I guess the simple term is what I've heard before you know the bad guy gets a vote too the bad guy has choices okay right. and I mean unless your options are to shoot him on sight with a sniper rifle he gets a choice okay and their choice was to try to escape. Okay. And, and that, you know, that causes a whole series of different problems. And I think I think society now, uh, cities, departments, uh, jurisdictions, states, they're risk averse. 
okay, hey, listen, you know, we can't do that because we, we might get involved in a car crash, or we can't do that uh, because you know the you know the bad guy might 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 uh, ram uh, a, a, an innocent family or an innocent car. You know, I'm I'm really I'm really torn between that because, you know, law enforcement's not responsible for the criminal's actions. Okay, and, and our society has just flipped over, almost like upside down. They're they're trying to make law enforcement responsible for what a criminal a criminal does. And I think that, you know, that, that's a crazy, uh, that's a crazy thought. Okay. And, and I was thinking, I said, you know what, we need, the country needs to pass a law that says that, hey, you know what, a criminal, when, when law enforcement comes in contact with a subject, a, a fugitive or a, a criminal, whatever, and he announces himself, you know, stop, you know, a car stop, a stop and frisk or arrest scenario. The law should be that, hey, the criminal is solely responsible for what happens after that incident, not right. not the police, because people say, oh, the police shouldn't have done this. Like, no, the criminal should be held responsible. The criminal is the one, he got a vote, and he voted to shoot it out. He voted to, to uh, start a high-speed chase. He voted to take a hostage. He voted something, okay, something bad. Okay, but see, they... Society is trying to make law enforcement, you know, you know, the the patsy, law enforcement, the criminal, and I think that's that's baloney, okay. Um, and, and I think, like I said, I think our society now is upside down, and I, I wish there was a law that says, hey, an an individual is responsible for anything that happens after he is in, in, informed by law enforcement to pull over to the side, or you're under arrest. Or I need to speak to you right now about something, you know. I mean, you know, I mean, that sounds almost like a police state, okay. But, I mean, like I said, you know, there are jurisdictions now where they're not allowed to, to be involved in car chases anymore. And I, know. I think in Washington, D.C., they're not allowed to even be involved in, in port chases. I know. <laughs> I'm thinking, you've got to be know. kidding me. Give me a break, you know. So anyway, I mean, yeah. but you're, you're absolutely right about that. In the last 10 years, all the big headline cases of police killing someone many times accidentally or within a, a split second decision. Right. It's exactly. because of, um, of the actions of the individual who forced their hand. No police are walking up, executing people in the back of their cars. And what I tell people, too, when I have these lectures and, and podcasts like this, if the police aren't doing something wrong, if they pulled you over, you did nothing, and they put cuffs on you, whatever, sue their pants off afterwards. Get your money that way, and that way you're still alive to spend it. It's not your your mother or father that's getting the money down the line because of some lawsuit. You know what? You hit the nail on the head, and that's what I tell people. I said, hey, guys, if you get pulled over by the cops and you know you didn't do anything wrong or, you, or you, you know maybe, maybe you're department your police department you know in your area you suspect them to be corrupt or something okay stay civil okay the time to litigate your 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 case is not on the street with the cop getting in his face causing an altercation that's not the time to litigate the time to litigate is in court okay just mm -hmm. okay officer how can i help you what did i do well, I, I don't agree with you, sir. You know, I wasn't speeding or no, I'm not drunk or whatever. You know, get the citation, okay, or, or let them arrest you even. Okay, take you to jail. You know, I know it might be an inconvenience for a day or two, but you know what? 
like you said, when 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 you get into court, you sue their sue them blind. I, right. And I and I concur. I, I support that one hundred percent. But the thing is, a lot of people think, "Oh no, you can't do that. I'm a citizen." Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you get you get into an altercation on the street with a a, a police officer, it's going to end up badly. It's going to you you chose You're poorly, right. as they say. You know, as you're I, right. Ed, you know, beautifully explained. And I, you know, it's so simple. The way you talk about it is that everybody has a choice. Everybody has free will. Everybody gets a vote, including the bad guy. Yep. Depending on what he does is going to depend on what the reaction is with law enforcement. Yep. So they they really control it. Yep. They really they have a they control their own destiny. They really really do. Well, absolutely. Really do. I mean, you know what? Sometimes I, you know, and, and I, I hope nobody takes this the wrong way. But I tell you what: if, if we lived in a, in a perfect world, you know, you, you would have. Everybody would be a law-abiding citizen. You would, you would, you wouldn't need cops. You'd have constables. You know, more like tour guides. Okay, yes, sir. The library is down the road, two blocks to the left. You know, it's like, yes, this is a good restaurant. But unfortunately, that's not the society we live in. You know, we we live in a society where where there are predators out there. Okay, criminals, predators, robbers, rapists, you know, murderers, all kinds of stuff. And you know what? We we are we as, as law enforcement officers are what stand between them. Society and 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 predators, okay, yeah. and and to te- to to treat your law enforcement officers, your your protectors, like like trash, you know. Look at society; nobody wants to be a cop anymore. I mean, you know, there are so many jurisdictions across the country that can't they can't find recruits. That's correct. Okay, it's That's like correct. you know, like you reap what you sow. You know, and I honestly, again, I don't want anybody to to, to you know take this the wrong way, but I hope. And I truly hope that some jurisdictions get so run down that the politicians that have voted for defund the police and and and, and all the shenanigans about hey let, listen let's handcuff the police while giving criminals no cash bail even even violent criminals get no cash you know what when these criminals start raping and killing the politicians' families I guarantee you there'll be a different tune at the city council meetings. Said, so, well, we need to do something. Was didn't there something happen, you know, in San San, San Francisco, where one of the city council uh, members, a female, was robbed? That's correct. Was yeah. robbed at the at the wharf, mm-hmm. and well, she yes, called the correct. cops, and she was upset because the cops took ten or fifteen minutes to get there. And then mm-hmm. she goes, "Well, the police need to be more reactive." I said, "Lady, you voted to defund mm-hmm. the police. It's your fault. So what what are you blame, trying to blame the cops for?" I think San Francisco's down by. Thirty-three uh, percent, and, and yeah, all over, all over. You know, all over. Know. And, I mean, I, and you know what else is a problem, Ed? Is that what they're doing to be able to to bump up the roles uh, and and attract more people? Is they're lowering the standards yeah. for a lot of these major cities, and that's a mistake. I tell you that what, is though, a mistake. You are so correct on that. You hit the nail, another nail on the head. You know, because I saw Miami. Uh, PD, not 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 Metro Dade. Metro Dade is a county PD. Mm-hmm. Miami ha- City has had had their own PD. They lowered their standards in nineteen in the in the mid nineteen eighties. Okay, and I showed up in Miami in eighty five, and, and I didn't know this, but the FBI, along with the a Dade County Drug Task Force, was investigating already working on a case, uh, a police corruption case. 
It ended up being called the Miami River Cops case. I don't know if, if that rings a bell with you guys. No. There were six, uh, I think it was six, maybe eight buddies that they all went to high school together. They all graduated from high school together. And the Miami PD was recruiting, heavily recruiting, you know, uh, at the time. And they lowered the standards. So they hired these six to eight buddies. They went through the academy and so on and so forth. And, one, you know, hey, hoorah, you know, we're, we're police officers and so on and so forth. Well, you know, these buddies were so close knit, you know, and, and they were so, their bonds went all the way to, to elementary school, you know. They got it in their mind, you know, thinking, hey, you know what? So what if we rob criminals? So what if we, you know, you make a car stop, you find an ounce of coke, okay, you know, I'll keep it, I won't report it. It ended up turning into the Miami River Cops case, okay, because it came to a point where they actually started organizing hits on on, on bad guys, you know, and what are you going to do? You know, who are you going to call when, when somebody steals your cocaine? Especially when you suspect they're cops, you're going to call other cops. Hey, officer, someone stole my cocaine. Can you come help me? <laughs> what are you yeah, going to I've say? seen it, anyway, though. I've seen it happen to Philadelphia. Things got out of hand. It hit a peak. They went to the Miami River. They got a tip that there was some coke on a boat. They went in at 2 in the morning. They, they went to the boat. There were two, two guards there. They, they slapped them around, and then they threw the guards in the river. Okay, they took the coke, and they, and they left. Well, mistake you know uh neither one of those two guys was a swimmer they couldn't swim so no. when they threw them in the river okay they went down okay so in the next next morning they, they found two two dead bodies floating on the river you know so metro uh homicide comes in to investigate and uh, the security guard who happened to be on duty at the time he said uh oh are you guys back uh -huh. the, the police said, what do you mean I'll be back? He said, yeah, you, we, we had a, a visit by the police about 2 or 3, 2, two to 30 in the morning. And they said, what? They said, yeah, we had about four or five cops, you know, show up here at 2 or 3 in the morning. They said they were investigating something. And that was their downfall. That went, it ended up to, uh, they were all, you know, uh, arrested, you know, fired. One of them ended up being a fugitive. He he fled to like Costa Rica or Panama. He mentioned he was caught. I think he may have, may may have been on the top ten for a couple of days, you know. So, anyway, they they I mean, it was a, a black stain on Miami, a black stain on cops. Yeah, you know, because these guys actually killed drug dealers, you know. So, you know, poor poor lowering standards. Okay, lowering standards. You you you. You know, you get what you that mean. provides that applies to any profession for that matter. But certainly law enforcement has to be on the top there. And we're running out of time here. And I just want to kind of we where we started with this was you as my class counselor. And we're about the same age, <laughs> only a few months apart. And right. uh, and 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 to have you there in the classroom on that first night and, and through the rest of it. I've been through two academies already at that point, And I kind of knew how. I won't say it's a game, but I kind of knew how the process worked. And uh, you got to be very strict in the beginning. You can lighten up a little bit toward the end. Remember, Ed, our class was the first one, along with our still good friend, Jim Clemente. We actually videotaped a bunch of vignettes. And we had one of our classmates, I think it was Art Paveros, <laughs> another Hispanic guy. 
who looked who actually looked like Ed, and he would dress up and kind of put a mustache on him, and we had some fun, and we thought, oh, Morales make it really bad. None of us is going to graduate. We're going to get thrown out of the academy. But you were laughing out loud, uh, holding your stomach when when we showed that video that night at the that, that at the graduation funny. dinner. It was, it, it was Art, right? Art who did the uh, Art Faveros, yeah, yeah, who portrayed you. Say, you know what? Don't don't go to sleep. Don't close your eyes. <laughs> yes. I'm, gonna be, I'm behind you. you know? We, we remember that. The last thing you hear is like, who's laughing now? You know? <laughs> no, but you know what? It was a, it was a funny, funny skit. Hey, but you know what, though? You're right, though. I mean, if you go through the academy, academies are, you know, they, like in the Marine Corps, you know, I mean, they break you down. I mean, they, back in the 80s, I mean, they broke us down. They broke us down with, you know, you know, kicks and punches and slaps and, you know, Sleep deprivation and 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 just bad you know, bad names, no doubt. Yeah, I mean it was like really, really tough. But you know what though, I I I wanted so badly for everybody to know. I I wish I I wish I could have taken it somehow and put it into a a, a candy bar or a drink and give it to each individual trainee. I said, hey, this has been my experience. You can't die. Okay, you can be killed. You can be crippled, disfigured, and maimed. Okay, and if you don't take this job seriously, if you're in here for just you know chucks and giggles, you're in the wrong place, guys. Okay, because it doesn't matter what your degree is in. You could be a, a white collar person, or you could be a, a former cop or former military. It does not matter what your background is. And I tell people, I say, hey, did you know this? And I break it down. Uh, Gordon McNeil and Richard Benazzi were business majors. Ben Grogan and, and Gil Arantia were teachers, okay? Jerry Dove and John Hanlon were lawyers, attorneys. And Ed Morales and Ron Reiser, Ron Reiser were the, two, the two, only two knuckle draggers. We were former Marines. So we had teachers, businessmen, and lawyers involved in the gunfight. You, you may not have a choice. You could be the guy in the gap. You could be the one holding back the, the, the flood, okay? It, so I tell them, say, it doesn't matter what degree you have in or what you, your expectation, white collar, blue collar, you know, I mean, I mean, accountant, you know, whatever. You have got to be prepared every minute of every day, okay, that, that you're on duty. And I could sense that some people, you know, you look, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, you know, but as cops, you, we are, you know, kind of, you, you, you learn, you, you have to be, well, you know, you read them and say, Hey, listen, you know, something, something's off about this guy. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. You know, I mean, can you testify about that in court? No, you can't, your honor, there was something off, you know, your honor objection, you know, <laughs> what the hell does that mean? You know, mm -hmm. but we know, we know amongst cops, you know, and, and just psychology, you can tell something, you know, and you, you can look at people and say, Hey, you know what? I don't think this, this person's heart is in it. You know, and, and you know what? I don't want to see him hurt and I don't want to see him get other people hurt. So maybe the best option is for you not to be here. OK, and, and I know, I mean, you know, I think HR in 2023 would probably throw me out, you know, because it's like, hey, <laughs> you can't do that. You can't you can't say that to people. I said, well, yeah, I can, you know, because of my experience, you know, it's like, hey, but, you know, I, I wasn't doing it to be mean. OK, no. I was just doing it. And it's like, hey, I'm doing you a favor, kid. Yeah. You know, this there guy you are. can kill you. 
Okay. And, and I so much hope, you know, you don't have to face that, you know. And so, you were only 18 months away yeah. from actually experiencing that. And yeah. we lost about 10 people in our class of 40. But looking back, I think, you know, everyone, the, the collective right decision was made. So and I'll just end it with this. Um, we all knew about Ed's experience a year and a half before, but um, we didn't hear about it from him until I think a day before graduation. We sat in a classroom and everyone was dead silent. You couldn't hear a, a, a pin drop. And um, and Ed finally went into explaining what happened that fateful day with some diagram. I'm sure PowerPoints were around then, but at least some slides, maps, things like that. And it was yeah. really, really spelled out in, in yeah. great detail. I think we spared the audience a little bit of that tonight. But um, there's a couple of things. Uh, Ed, I had a movie made about the Unibomb case. And I'm on the whole okay with it. NBC did in the line of fire. Are you basically okay with that TV movie from back in the day? God, I, I have some, <clears throat> I have some issues with that, you know, and, and, and I don't know how much time we have, but it, it's kind of a funny issue. Uh, one of what, uh, one of my trainees, uh, Anderson, he was the ASAC in Houston. I don't know whether you guys knew him or not. Mm, he asked me not. to go to Houston to speak to the, uh, the police, uh, the citizens Academy, you know, whatever, whatever the bureau has. Sure. There. You know, isn't that didn't they do something on, t on a movie, Police Academy? They do. <laughs> yeah, they do. They have anyway, the FBI Citizens so, Academy. You're right. So he said, hey, Ed, you know, we'd love to have you come down and, and talk to the, the Citizens Academy. And I said, hey, you know, I said, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, just, you know, I mean, I can't invite myself, you know, if you have to invite me, you know, so. So he did. And I went there. And su surprisingly, they didn't want to know anything about the. They didn't want me to lecture. They said, hey, we're good. We're going to show the TV movie. Oh, boy. And I oh, said, okay, geez. you know, we'll just go with the movie. Okay. And there is a very, at the very end of that movie, when the credits are rolling, you know, towards the end of the movie, the character that played me, Ed Morales, the, the squad is on the beach, you know, which we, we did, we did do a lot of things together, but we never went to the beach at night to have a bonfire, you know? <laughs> so that was a little bit of poetic license, but the character that played me is in the scene. And I'm I'm just shaking my head like this, and after the movie was over, I said I said, folks, you know, I got up and when it was my turn to speak, I told the audience, I said, hey, I just have one thing to say about that movie. I said I never, ever in my life ever wore red <laughs> spandex pants. <laughs> I said that character in the movie was wearing, and somebody said, oh, you wear the blue ones, right? And I'm thinking. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's great. So uh, that's one thing that I always correct. You know, if, if, if you have if anybody has a movie or rented or whatever, go back, go to the very end. And when they're on the beach, you see the guy that plays me is wearing red, you know, like like uh, what do they call it? Uh, Lululemon pants, you know, it's like, <laughs> red, you know, it's like and I, you're a great guy, Ed, but I don't really want to have that image of you. So I will. No, absolutely not. Anyone who's listening, get that out of your system. But real quick, Ed has a website, of course. It's uh, www.ed.morales, M-I-R-E-L-E-S.com. You can get his book, FBI, Academy, FBI Miami Firefight, Five Minutes to Change the Bureau. And uh, if they contact you, sign copy, you can work out. Sounds like a good deal. Look for Lalo, which is actually the Spanish uh, name for Edward. I didn't know that. You Ed, told Ed, me earlier. Ed. Or Eddie. And Undercover Tales of Money, Drugs, and Lies. That'll be out later in 2020.
23, knock on wood. Hopefully at the end of the summer, yeah. By the way, one oh. correction on the on the website is edmorellis.com, not ed.morellis, okay? Uh, sorry that's about my, that. That's my email address, you know. <laughs> uh, okay. Edmorellis, M-I-R-E-L-E-S.com. And um, this has been great. Uh, Ed, we go back a long time. My first day in the Bureau was with you, and uh, and it would be nice to get together again, and we will. Thank you. Thank you for spending this time with our audience on Cold Red. Ray, final words here. Uh, thanks, Ed, for joining Fitz and I. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, we're honored to have you with us today. And the next time we go out, the meal is on Fitz. All right? He never <laughs> pays. He's got them alligator arms, Ed. So we got to get him to get the thing where he can bring those alligator arms out. I tell you yeah. what, man. Just like my kids, they have alligator arms. You know, like, <laughs> isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth, right? Hey guys, you know, right. really, I, I really appreciate the time and 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 the and the consideration to be uh, one of your uh, speakers, one of your guests. You know, it's like, hey, you know, keep keep up the good work, man. And and you know, all we could do now that we're old and and gray, you know, all we can do, you know, we, we became we become sages, we become wise men, we become gray bears or whatever you want to call it. You know, we we, we have to keep sharing our knowledge so somebody else doesn't have to reinvent the wheel with blood sweat and tears you know so and for the audience guys stay sharp you know uh i i tell people i said hey you have always got to be you know uh scan and plan okay you, you got to be scanning and planning scanning i mean left and right no, it doesn't matter whether you're retired or you're an old guy or a woman or it's whatever true. you have always got to be scanning your environment you know, situational awareness, scanning and planning, scanning and planning, left and right. I mean, that's, you know, especially if you're a, a law enforcement officer. Okay. And, I think that's you know, a good way to, that's a great way to end this scan and plan from the man who certainly would know how to do that. And uh, uh, in more ways than one, obviously in the classroom at Quantico, but also in the mean streets of Miami where he, uh, he proved yeah. his medal there. So again, Ed, thank you very much. And everyone out there, um, see you next time on Cold Red. Another episode of Cold Red. Okay. God bless you guys. All right. Take God care. bless, Ed. Take care. Thank okay. you. Thanks, Ed. Great job, Ed.